today we begin a new series entitled Four, and uh, we're grateful that each one of you are here, even the guy that was in the video. So we are, are glad that you're here with us today. If you're a guest with us, let me just uh, say a special welcome and hello, whether you're in Theater 14 or you're here in Theater 9, or some of you may be listening online or watching online, and uh, we want to welcome you to come and join us sometime. But those of you who are here with us today, I would like to invite you, if you would, take your worship programs, you look through them a little bit. You'll see there's some information there about the church, different things that are happening in the days ahead. On the back, there's a card attached to it called a connection card. And we ask you to fill that out today, if you don't mind. Take it out to the first-time guest kiosk and uh, just turn it in over there. And, and I'll tell you what we do with that is uh, we've been made aware of lots of stuff that happens in our, in our society. And there's some great tragedies and injustices that take place. And uh, we believe as being light that's placed here in this world as representatives of Jesus Christ, that we're supposed to be for people and, and loving people the way that Christ would love people. One of the greatest tragedies in our world today is uh, human trafficking, human slavery. There are more slaves in the world today than there ever have been in human history. Uh, most of them are sex slaves or labor slaves, and we partner with a ministry that actually rescues people, young ladies and children, out of that type of uh, terrible situation, brings them into what they call safe houses, and in the safe house, they share the love of Jesus with them. And uh, they give them some clothes. They, they teach them um, a trade so that they have something to do other than sell their bodies when they leave. Because a lot of people that are rescued out of the human trafficking actually go right back into it. Um, but these safe houses provide an opportunity for them not only to hear about the love of Jesus, but to be equipped to live life outside of that world. And so we found out about a month ago it cost about $250 to keep a person in the safe house for a month. And so for every connection card that gets turned in our first-time guest kiosk um, by a first-time guest today, um, we'll be donating $10 towards um, a month's stay for someone that will be in, in that type of situation. So we'd love it if you'd fill those cards out and turn them in. And also, if you're a guest, we'll give you a gift and some information about the church. And if you've never filled the card out before, but you're not a first-time guest, please fill it out today and turn it in, and we'll still count you, and <laughs> you won't be in trouble uh, anything like that. But uh, we're, we're grateful that each one of you are here, decided to worship with us today. Today's a really a big day for us as a church. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, at tonight, you'll know at the Embassy Suites, we're hosting a simulcast for an event our own Ann Lotz is doing um, called Wake Up. And so if you haven't gotten tickets for that and you're interested in going to that, go to the Connections Kiosk on your way out today. Today's what we call State of the Church Sunday, and uh, uh, probably have no idea what that means, right? Uh, I joked at the first service and said it doesn't mean there's going to be like some dudes that are like the speaker of the church and a different vice pastor up here, and, and they're going to you know say, listen to me talk about the staffing of the church and the economy of the church and all those things. That's not what we're going to do today. Um, but that's kind of fun, right? No, boring as I'll get out. But so what we're going to do, interrupt football games and stuff. But anyway, um, what we're going to do is uh, I didn't mean that to be bad about our president. I'm glad uh, he's leading us. But anyway, the um, the thing that, uh, that we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about our vision that we talk about as a church that we want to connect people to Jesus for life change. And so what State of the Church is for us, it's a time for us um, to think about whether or not that's actually happening. As leaders, lay leaders, staff leaders, uh, different folks that are involved in the church, um, sometimes it's easy to get focused on your ministry, kind of the thing you do, children's ministry, greeters, and all that kind of stuff, outreach in the community, different, all those things. But is it really accomplishing what we say that we're about? And if you're uh, not new, or if you're new here to the church, haven't been around very much, what we talk about, we really talk about the vision every week. Our vision is we want to connect people uh, God loved people. He gave his son for people. And they're not objects. They're not just numbers. People, every person has a story. And we want to connect those people to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has transformed our lives. We want to connect people to Jesus Christ for life change. And so we say that all the time, but it's not just a slogan. It's not just a tagline. We want it to be reality. And so we evaluate whether or not that's happening, what that's taking place. And so at the end of the service today, um, you'll receive a, what we call State of the Church booklet as you're exiting the doors. And it'll talk about finances. It'll talk about staffing. It'll talk about some of those things. But ultimately, you'll get to see if you're focused in on you know, men's ministry or children's ministry or whatever your area is. You can see the big picture, things that are happening all around the church. And then if you're new to the church, what a great day to come, because you're going to get way more information than you get just in your worship program, probably more information than you get any other Sunday you come. So we're glad that you're here. And uh, we're also going to start today a brand new series. So it's a great day for you to come. 
If you're new, we're going to be in this series for the next 10 weeks, and so I challenge you just to check us out for 10 weeks and stay with us through this series, and after that you can decide whether or not you want to go somewhere else and, and find another thing, but we'd love to have you here. We believe that God has you here for a reason, and our desire for you is that you be connected to Jesus for life change. And so I'm going to pray for that. I'm also going to pray for right now, we know this is a big day in our country. A lot of people are reminded of a, a very tragic time that took place 10 years ago, and so I'm going to pray for some of the families that lost people. Obviously, there's been a war that's taken place as well, and lots of soldiers, and I'm going to pray for um, all the people that have been impacted by what happened 10 years ago today, and I just enjoy, invite you to join me in, in praying for those folks. Let's pray. Father God, we are, uh, we're thankful that you're still in the business of changing lives, that the words that we sang in those songs are still true, that you are greater than any other God, that you are here and present um, now, that salvation is still a reality. And uh, God, there are some times where the circumstances are so overwhelming here. I think about what took place 10 years ago, uh, 9-11, so many people losing moms and dads and friends and people that they loved and spouses and just even the news reports and all the things that have happened this week that we've seen of people that were lost, 3,000 people that one day, and then not to mention all the soldiers that have heroically given their lives. And, and God, no, some of those people were innocent victims. They just got on a plane that day. And some people were heroes that went rushing into a building to save people. And God, we don't forget them. And I pray for those that are here today that maybe lost someone they loved. God, I, I pray that you comfort their hearts today. I pray you bring peace and uh, as much understanding as possible on this side of eternity. And Father God, I pray for each one that lost somebody that are around this country, around the world, that they would hear the gospel today, that you would transform their lives in some way. I pray for those that don't know your son Jesus yet, that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray for those that do know your son Jesus, that you would comfort their hearts, be just their loving father of compassion and care, and wrap believers around them with real genuine compassion and care, not just trite slogans, not just easy things to say, but God, that people would genuinely care. And God, I pray we would. And God, I pray for our hearts today as we open up your word that you'd speak to us, that you would be present, that you would show up, that you would transform, that you would change lives, that you would do what we depend upon you to do because we can't strategize it, we can't scheme it, we can't manipulate it, but that you would touch our hearts and you'd transform us at our core and make us new people living the lives that you designed us to live, to walk in your forgiveness, to walk in your freedom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today before we start uh, the series that we're going to be in, I'm going to play a little game with you. And my theory is that we're family here today, that uh, whether you're an attender, uh, somebody that comes on a regular basis, whether you showed up for the first time today or you're a member, uh, at least you're a part of the family here today. And so we're going to play a little game It has to do with family. <laughs> and I was telling first service, I don't know if the couples here, first service, second service, there's actually a family in our church that at one time was on this game show that we're going to spoof off of here in just a moment, Family Feud. Now, if you're that family, I do not have videotape of you that I'm going to show right now. But you can email me later in the week, and we can talk about the future appearances for you. But uh, what we're going to do is we're going to play a little version of Family Feud. If you don't know what Family Feud is, it's a game show that started in the 70s time frame. What would happen is the host of the show would ask a question that they had asked to about 100 other people that had been surveyed. And you were supposed to guess the answer. There's two families, and we decide which family can guess the best based on how they guess the thing. You're supposed to guess the answer of how people answered on the survey. It's not necessarily the right answer. It's just the answer that the majority of people gave. And, and so just to give you a little preface to the game rules, what's going to happen here is I'm going to read a question, and I want you to guess what you think the most popular answer is. If you guess the most popular answer, you get three points. If you guess the most, second most popular answer, you get two points. If you guess the third most popular answer, you get one point. If you guess the fourth most popular answer, eh, no points. Okay? You keep track of your own points. I'm not going to keep track of your points for you. So here's how it works. First question, 
name something for which people often arrive late. Some of you are feeling convicted. <laughs> Think about it. And here's the rule, too. I talk kind of fast. I get excited during the message, some of those things. But I'm totally open to interaction. So you feel free to shout out answers to me if you want to. What, what are some things people arrive late to? Church. Church. All right. And survey says, number one, party. That's a three-pointer. Number two is church. It's not just Southbridge. And number three is work. And that doesn't go very long, but it is an answer. Uh, number two question, you can keep track of your points. Three, two, one point. Remember that? Number two question, name a food, and this is an actual question from Family Feud. Name a food mentioned in the Bible. Bread, manna. I got bread and manna, the popular ones. Fish. Fish is a popular one. What else we got? Wine. Food? Pomegranate. <laughs> Old grapes, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Wine is in the Bible. It's real wine. But anyway, uh, survey says bread, manna, number one answer. Thank you, God, this daily bread and fish. Remember, that's a whole whale story and those fishermen dudes and all that stuff. An apple. Isn't apple really in the Bible? I don't know. You have to search. Do a little survey through there. In the story of Adam and Eve, there's no mention of an apple, though, just so you know. A little homework assignment for you. But number three question, what is a word used to describe someone who talks too much? Whoa, I've got a gender comment. First service, somebody said my wife. <laughs> I said, not my wife. I mean, he was talking about his wife. And I said, we offer pastoral counseling. It's not my wife. You said someone's name sitting by you? No, I'm not responsible. You answer. The answers are, survey says, blabbermouth, Gabby, chatterbox, three, two, one points. Keep track of your score there. Number four question, name a decision you make as a young adult that changes your life. Getting married. Marriage is one. College. What else? What do we got? Jesus Christ. I heard out there. Here we go. Survey says marriage, number one answer given on the survey. College. Career or job being a one-pointer there. How'd you do on the survey? The number five answer on this question, uh, the Family Feud survey here, was being a Christian. That was the fifth answer in the survey. I would say, just my opinion, it's the most important decision that anyone could make, whether you're a young adult, a child, or an adult, to being a Christian. Some of you have made that decision to be a Christian. And for different people that will hear my words at this moment, that might mean something different. For some of you, when you say, I'm a Christian, that means you grew up in a church and somebody says, are you a Christian? You say, I'm a, you fill in the blank with like a denomination or a church type or whatever it was, whatever your background was, or you went to church your whole life and won, or maybe you raised your hand at a thing, walked an aisle, you know some verses, you've always gone, whatever the thing, you're involved in something philanthropic and lots of people mean lots of different things by that some of you when you say you're a christian you mean what the bible says about it is that you placed your faith in jesus christ who lived a perfect life for you he was sinless so he could be a sinless sacrifice on the cross and when he rose again he offered you life and you accepted that gift of eternal life and so that's what you mean when you say that you're a christian but if you're a christian whether cultural christian and the first things that i mentioned or whether biblical version of what jesus calls a christian then you scored maybe an eight or higher on the survey I just gave you with those first four questions. You should probably be good at answering the question I'm about to ask you. There's a survey that's been done of people outside the church, not necessarily called non-Christians. They're not anti-Christian. They're just people that are not Christians. And so the book that I'm referring to is a book called Unchristian, and they did this survey, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, if you'd like to look that up and find it on your own. And in the book, they did a survey of thousands of people that they call outsiders. And that's people that are outside of the church. That's uh, atheists and agnostics and Islamists and Buddhists and every other-ist you can think of that's out there. 
and they asked them, what do you, what's your perception of a Christian? And that's people that are inside the church. That's whether you're a cultural Christian, whether you're a genuine follower of Jesus, whatever uh, you are, you label yourself in some way, born again, evangelical Christian, you go to a church. And what are their perceptions of us, the outside people's perceptions of those that are inside? The number one response was, in the top three answers, is that 91% of young outsiders, that's people 16 to 29 years old, that are outside the church, think that we're anti-homosexual. That's more than 9 out of 10. 91%, that's their number one view of us. 87% of young outsiders believe that we, that are inside the church, are judgmental. 85% of young outsiders say that we are hypocritical. And by that they mean that we say one thing and we do something else. And you continue to read on through Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman's book, and what they end up saying is, is that people basically have a perception that we're entrenched in our thinking, that we're angry, that we're warmongers, that we're illogical, that we can't live at peace with people that are outside of the church. And some of us might even say inside the church. And you go through that we're angry and that we're violent and that we're all these things that are so negative. In fact, here's a direct quote from the book after going through all of their study. It's in studying thousands of outsiders and their impressions, it is clear that Christians are primarily perceived for what they stand against. We become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. And think about that. We're famous for what we oppose, anti-choice, anti-gay, anti some political, they say we're very political, rather than who we are for. What we're against rather than who we are for. Is that true? That's what the survey says. Was it true of us individually? Is it true of us as a church? And let me tell you something. My motive in this series is to talk about what we're for, but it's not so that we can have a better PR campaign for Christianity. It's not to change our image in society. But how can we get so caught up in the cultural Christianity that's there that tells us all the political things to do, that tells us all the ways that we're supposed to think, that tells us, but what does God say? And who is he? And what does his character reveal about himself? And what is he actually for? Because when Jesus came to die, did Jesus come to die so that he could win an election? Did Jesus come to die to stand for certain issues and proposals and bills? When Jesus came to die, did he come to stand against certain people groups? Did Jesus come to condemn the world? Or did Jesus come to save the world? John chapter 3, verse 17. When Jesus came, did he come to rescue sinners? to set us free, to set the captives free, to give good news to the poor, the poor in spirit, those that are broken? Or was it just for a certain class of people that they're supposed to get this good information? When Jesus came, did he come just to stop injustices like human trafficking, or did he come for the people that are caught in that very thing? Ultimately, what did Jesus come for? Was it our good and his glory? And they're all questions we have to answer as we go through this series. And the answers don't come from studying culture, and they don't come from taking surveys of what people say or going door-to-door through Briar Creek and seeing what the public opinion is of this church or of Christianity as a whole or of Jesus. They come ultimately from the Scriptures. So what we're going to look at is perhaps the most popular passage of Scripture in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's oftentimes referred to as the Ten Commandments. It's in the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. So towards the beginning, it goes Genesis, then Exodus. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, we give them out for free. There's a couple that are over here on your way out by the offering box. And there's some that are by the connection table, the first-time guest kiosk. If you ask for one, we'd love to give you a copy. But in Exodus chapter 20, what we have is the Ten Commandments. Think about this for a minute. We're talking about what we're for, and we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. Now, for some of us, that doesn't matter at all, because if you did a survey of the church, most people don't even know the Ten Commandments. Like, if you asked us to list the Ten Commandments, many of us, we couldn't list the Ten Commandments. But here's an interesting study of sociology. But we all know we want them in the schools, right? And we all know that we want them in the courtroom. 
Do we even know what they say? And some of us, we know what they say. Because maybe you like, saw a movie, and there was this dude with like, a white beard, and he goes up on a mountain, and these two stone tablets come down, and there's these two lists of rules, and God was able to write with really nice handwriting on these two stone tablets, and that's how they came out. And, or maybe like at Grandma's house, they were up above the piano, or whatever they were. And so you've got to memorize somehow, but do you really understand what they are? Because oftentimes we think of them as these rules that are dropped on us from the sky, and if you don't obey those rules, then God's not happy with you, and you can't have a relationship with God. Well, here's the thing. They actually happen in a context. Like all the scriptures, they happen in a context, and the context for the Ten Commandments, are they're not just rules that drop down from the sky. They happen in a context of relationship, actually in a context of freedom. God's just set his people free from captivity. After 430 years, they're three months removed from captivity. And in this context of relationship, he's for freedom. Here's a question for you to ask yourself. Do you think he rescued them from bondage so he could take them into more bondage, bondage to rules now? Or did he rescue them for freedom so that he can then show them how to live for freedom? And I believe that we have a God that is for freedom. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we? And the context that we see this in starts in chapter 19. I'll start reading in verse 16. It's a pretty intense scene. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16, Moses writes this. He says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. It's about two million people. And they're coming out to this mountain, and they want to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended on this mountain, and you skip down to chapter 20, and we see what ends up getting said, not just to Moses on top of the mountain, but directly to all the people. It says, and God spoke all these words in chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And we won't read them all today, but then you go through and there's the rest of the commandments. And don't have idols, don't misuse my name, remember the Sabbath, honor your mother and father, don't kill, don't murder, don't don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, be content, don't covet. And it can still feel like, wow, it's overwhelming, all these rules. But then you go back to verses 1 and 2. The context for the Ten Commandments is relationship. I am the Lord your God, verse 2. Your God, a personal God, to the people of Egypt? Did he just rescue it out of bondage? There's a, there's a relationship there. There's history there. And it's in the context of freedom. And what he's doing when he gives them these commandments, all ten of them, is he's talking to them about, here's the promises. Here's the covenant relationship we're entering into. This is a relationship because freedom is ultimately best experienced in relationship with God. Real biblical, genuine freedom. And I don't just mean freedom like we have rights to express ourselves in certain ways and these types of rights. I mean real freedom, not just that we get to do whatever we want. Freedom. Real biblical freedom is experienced in relationship with God, the one who created you and designed you and desires for you to live in freedom. He's for freedom, and the question is, are we? He's gone to Great Lakes to have a relationship with you. Think about his son, Jesus Christ, coming to this earth. And I'll tell you, as I studied these commandments this week and reading about other different ones, not even just the one we'll look at today, but studying through all ten of them, I was blown away by my own sinfulness. And outwardly, you could probably manage most of these things. 
There's the last one that's about affections. That's pretty difficult. But when you start to see that when Jesus or God says here that he doesn't want you to commit adultery, he's talking about not just physically committing adultery, he's talking about in your heart. And when you see that he talks about murder here, like I've never murdered anybody, but you get really angry at somebody and it's the encompassingness of this, it encompasses your whole heart. One guy I read said this, if he just had to keep rules, he'd rather have to keep the rules of a, a false religion, a cult that has 7,777 commandments than the 10 commandments of the Bible. Because the Ten Commandments of the Bible were so all-encompassing. There's more room in the 7,777 than there are in the Ten because the Ten demands your whole heart. Amen. That's why when Jesus summarizes them, he says, love God. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. And then love your neighbor. That summarizes all ten. That doesn't seem against anything. That seems like it's for God and for a relationship with God. And that relationship is in the context of freedom. And that freedom, and that's our first point, is experienced in relationship with God. Freedom is experienced in relationship with God. And I was thinking about that this week. I remember my commencement speech when I graduated from seminary. I don't know how many of you have graduated from an institution, high school, college, graduate school, whatever it is. Have you ever been to a commencement speech? And that, like, bore you out of your gourd. <laughs> it's like the last hurdle before they give you a fake piece of paper so that then they can give you the real piece of paper and you kind of do the, anyway, what happens is some guy stands up and says, you know, four score or whatever he says at that moment, you know, it says, so today's the first day of the rest of your life, whatever, just like every day. But anyway, he goes through the thing and does this whole speech and you're just like checked out, counting ceiling tiles, whatever you're doing at that moment. Not at my graduation for seminary. There's a guy, his name was Josh McDowell, he's a great speaker, and he was talking about, he wrote a book, if you're a skeptic of Christianity, a great book to look at called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he was speaking to, remember, it's a seminary graduation, a bunch of guys are going to be pastors, a bunch of women that are going to ministry, and folks that are going to be teaching the Bible, people that are going to be scholars, writing books, and going all over the place to try and share Jesus with people. And he didn't talk to us about ministry. And in fact, he didn't talk to us about preaching, he didn't talk to us about any of that kind of stuff. He actually talked to us about our families. And he talked about raising kids, and he talked about loving your spouse. And, and I remember the main point of his message was this. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. He said, rules without relationship always leads to rebellion. Now, it's not a guarantee that if you have the relationship, there won't be rebellion. But rules without relationship will always lead to rebellion. And he was talking to us, and I'm thinking about it as someday going to be a father with my kids. And here's our father. He doesn't just drop rules on us. It's in the context of a relationship. And think about the context of what's taken place. They've spent 430 years in oppression. They've just seen incredible miracles. They've just seen these plagues with the frogs and the gnats. And if you read Exodus chapter 1 through 19, you see all this stuff. But then there's this intense scene where this relationship starts. Try and imagine the scene where this relationship starts to go into this covenant mode, this promissory mode. And God's going to speak directly to all the people, not just to Moses. It's not just Moses up on top of a mountain. Moses is leading all the people, and God's going to speak to all the people. And one of the most common requests I get for sermons is this. How do I know God's voice? How do, how do I know when God speaks to me? Try and imagine the scene when God speaks to these people here. There's thunder and lightning. There's no mistake what's taking place here. Okay, It's not like, hey, maybe that was God. I don't know. I kind of, maybe I ate something. I, I don't know. It wasn't that. Thunder and lightning, and Hollywood couldn't reproduce this deal. There's a cloud descending from heaven. Try and picture that. When I try to picture that in my office this week, I was thinking maybe it was this week and all the stuff I saw on the news, but I remembered 9-11 10 years ago. Some of you remember where you were at 10 years ago and what took place, and I remember I got a phone call. Somebody told me to turn the TV on. I went to turn the TV on, and to see all those people in New York City, that plane go in and the smoke come down and running through the streets. 
I picture that here. I would imagine that all the people that were there that day will never forget where they were at in Exodus chapter 19. When God came down and spoke, it was probably incredibly majestic, but it was also terrifying. There were two million people, and this cloud descends from heaven because holiness is about to approach earth, something otherly. And as majestic as it is, it's incredibly terrifying. I don't think the parents are going, hey, kids, we're going to go talk to God. Grab your umbrella. It's cloudy outside. No, it says, go back to verse 18 in chapter 19. The earth was shaking violently. It wasn't a tremble. It was shaking violently. And there's thunder and there's lightning and this cloud comes down. It's burning like a furnace. The smoke is coming up. I imagine the smoke billowing over the people as they're coming. And they're staying at a distance because they're afraid of this. And then it says that there's this trumpet. And then oftentimes you read through the scriptures and you see a trumpet accompanies the voice of God. And you think about that. Sometimes we have such like pleasantry pictures of this. It's not that God comes singing like Broadway tunes. Have no other gods before you. Don't murder anyone. You know? The trumpet goes out. Wake up. There's no mistaking. God's going to speak. It's like in Revelation chapter 1 when John's on the island of Patmos. And he hears from behind him this trumpet. And then he turns and he hears a voice that sounds like rushing waters. And then he falls down as though dead. I don't think that was necessarily pleasant. I think it was incredibly terrifying while also majestic because holiness is coming onto earth. When we're unholy people, it's a terrifying thing. It's why the people say, all the people say, because all the people heard the Ten Commandments, all the people say in verse 18 this. They're talking to Moses. Uh, They say in, in chapter 20, in verse 18, we'll put the verse up on the screen. It says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. We can't handle it. Next time God comes to speak, you take a message, Moses, you just give it to us. Because we can't handle God's voice. Because he's holy and we're not holy, but holiness comes and descends upon the earth because he wants to speak directly to, not just Moses, he wants to speak directly to his people that he's rescued, that he's redeemed, that he's brought out of slavery, that he's brought out of bondage, that he's in relationship with. And it says in verse 1 that God spoke these words. I am the Lord, your God, personal God, in relationship, who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. Scholars talk about these words. They're incredibly relational words. They're what's called treaty language. And we can talk about that a whole bunch. A bunch of it applies to and doesn't, and a bunch of it doesn't apply to the scriptures. But what's happening here is they already have relationship, but they're now at this place of making commitment in the relationship. It's treaty language. It's promissory language that's taking place here. The best analogy I can think of for it, it's like wedding vows. When you go to the altar, you have a relationship with someone, you say some vows with them. I promise to, you know, love you and do these, you know, say whatever personal things you're saying. A lot of people have, you know, for richer, for poor, better, for worse, sickness and health, whatever the circumstances are. We're, we're together till death do us part. You make that promise before God and witnesses. Now, I've been a part of and I've been in one wedding in the sense that I, I married a woman and then I've done a couple of weddings as a pastor and stood in weddings before and I've attended weddings before. I've yet to see anyone come to the altar and then look at each other, you know, take the veil back and go, who are you? I've never been to a wedding in Vegas, but I've I've never seen this happen before. There's already a relationship by the time you get to the altar, right? Like you think about most stories, something like, you know, 
Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright comes walking into the room, whether it's church or school or work or wherever it is, and your eyes meet. And the rest is history, right? No, no, no. There's other contacts. There's stuff that happens. And it doesn't matter if it's like a few weeks or a few months or a few years, but stuff happens. And my wife, Shannon, and I we were joking in the car the other day. Every guy says to a woman things that he hopes that no other male on the earth ever finds out that he said. Every guy's done that. You say things to you. There's something that happens in that relationship, and you start to say things like, you're the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> you raise me up so I can walk on mountains or <laughs> something along those lines. You give me that love and feeling, baby. Whatever you say, you complete me. Whatever it is, you say something. The things that you hope no other man, you, I, not me, but other guys say that stuff. And so and there's something that happens there, and you fall in love with each other, and then you go to the altar, and then you make those promises. And see, these people, they already have a relationship. This isn't how you get a relationship with God, the Ten Commandments. Some people think that. What you end up realizing is God already has a relationship with these people. It's not because they're special. It's because he wants to have a relationship with them. He chose them to raise them up out of bondage. These are redeemed people, and he's talking to redeemed people how to live in this relationship these are people that already experienced the grace of God. These are people that he says, I am your God, the God that rescued you out of Egypt. You see, it's always been true. Old Testament, New Testament. We are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, not of keeping any set of rules, not of any list of this stuff. It's never been that. It doesn't matter if your name's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, or if your name's Scott or your name. We're saved by grace through faith. That's why when you see all these Old Testament guys in the New Testament, it's talking about their faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We're saved by grace through faith, and we enter into a relationship, and there's a history in the relationship, and the history for them was a history of bondage because they lived in a culture of bondage. And I was thinking about that this week, and, and I just thought of something I had never thought of before is that when they actually came to Egypt originally, it was to escape of something else. It was, to, it was almost like therapeutic from the situation they were in that was so difficult, but then it became oppressive, and then, and then the rulers started to take over from over them because they were afraid of them, and and you read it in Exodus chapter 1, how oppressive it was, and it was real physical slavery. But there's also the emotional that comes with that, and the spiritual that comes with that, and they started to worship other gods, and all kinds of things took place in that. But I thought about how true is that for us? We live in a culture of bondage. I mean, you want to be in bondage to something, just pick. It's all over the place. You can be in bondage. Think about how many people are codependent. You're so in bondage to what other people think about you. You live your life. Maybe it's like somebody who's died. You could be your mom or dad, and it's what they think, and you live your life for that. And some other person, and you live to be, make them happy and be around them, and you depend upon them. Or in bondage to material goods. And it's just, if I just got a little bit more, then it would be, and it never happens, but you don't quite put those pieces together, so you keep going, and you're controlled by that stuff. Or in bondage to addictions, or in bondage to something that, didn't it start off as an escape? Wasn't it good at first? Wasn't it, didn't it start off kind of therapeutic? I had one gentleman in our church, he told me I could share a story today, his name's Roger. He told me about his bondage. He said it started when he was nine years old, and he saw some calendars that his dad had. And uh, when his dad found out that he saw the calendars, he just told him, don't tell your mom. He said, I learned two things that day. One, I liked what I saw. Two, I can lie to cover it up. Ten years later, he ended up getting married. He's 19 years old. Married a lady, fell in love with her. They had a son, and everything's great at the beginning, you know, how it works. But then life's stressful, and work was stressful. And his son started getting in trouble, mischievous and doing things, and his wife started having some problems. Intimacy was gone in their relationship, and so he went back to that porn. It was an escape. He said it was therapeutic. It made sense to him. I mean, besides, he didn't have intimacy in his relationship, and he was the only one that really kind of had things figured out in life, and so he was living. That's what he'd do. That was his escape. That's what he would go to. After being married for 
quite some time, I think it was 19 years, his wife ended up passing away and really shook him up. And somebody went to him, and a lot of times people will reach out to you when you're in these difficult circumstances. Somebody went to him and ended up giving him a gospel of John. And in John, it's where it says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, placed his pornography in a dumpster, and said he experienced great freedom, but no one knew. And so he going to church, ended up meeting a lady who had been widowed, and she had some kids. They got married, had a great relationship with each other. He was working a job about 12 years later, and they gave him a computer, and it got stressful at work, and he was working a lot of late nights, and things were difficult, and some other circumstances in life, and started going to these websites. They were free websites. But now he's in the church. He said, and I, didn't, I thought that I probably wasn't alone, but no one ever talked about this stuff, except to condemn it. And so he couldn't say anything. Oh, he's an elder in the church, by the way, too. There's an elder in one church and a deacon in another church, and and he said, I've got this ministry going, and then, but I'm doing this, kind of, but it's not really hurting anybody, and he realizes he's addicted to it, and God began to speak to him directly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about how you're not your own, you're bought at a price, and he talks about sexual sin in the context there, and in the context he talks about sexual sin is different than other sins. Now, you're not only sinning against God, but you're sinning against your own body. He said, I started to see these images and realize these people, this wasn't real. These people are hurting too, and they're picking up baggage from all these circumstances. And there's pain here, and these are image bearers of God. And God had them repent and walk out of that bondage. And then we started a ministry here at Southbridge, a ministry here at Southbridge called Celebrate Recovery. And years later, he ends up realizing, wait, there are safe places where people can go and confess sin and can deal with this stuff. And where we can talk. And when we're walking in freedom, we talk about that. And when we fail, we talk about that. And so we started this ministry. It meets on Thursday night, 7 o'clock. You're welcome to be a part of it. And Roger's now a part of that, that ministry. You know what it is to, to walk in that freedom because God still sets captives free. I don't know if you're free. I don't know what your bondage is. It could be so many things. We live in a culture of bondage. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's a drug. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your family. It's other people's opinions of you. And you're in bondage to that stuff. And you know what? It wasn't just the Old Testament, and it wasn't just the land of Egypt. You look at what Jesus says, and some of you have been with us. We were going through the Gospel of Luke before this series. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches the first sermon that he preaches publicly at his home church, at his home synagogue. They want to kill him afterwards, but look at what the message was. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. And verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a year where deaths are canceled, slaves are set free. Now, I don't know how much you know of the Bible. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we refer to oftentimes as the Gospels. It's the life story of Jesus Christ. It's his ministry and life is on this earth. And here's what he says he came to do. From your reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many times have you seen Jesus go and open a prison door and let people out? It's okay to interact. How many times do you see in the gospel where Jesus leads, you know, prison break of some sort? Maybe he goes inside, <laughs> fall down, whatever, type deal. Now, well, the verse says right here that he's come to set the prisoners free, and he came to release the captives. And so did Jesus not accomplish his mission? Or was he talking about the kind of bondage that we're in? We're talking about sin because we continually see Jesus releasing people from bondage of sin. We, we remember the woman who's caught in adultery who comes to Jesus and he tells all those other people, you cast the first stone. And they're all gone and he looks at her and he says, don't, don't sin anymore. Was he condemning her? Was he setting her free? 
You see, what you're doing, when you do the freedom that you think that it is, that we get to do whatever we want, what we oftentimes do is that's exactly the thing that leads us into bondage because we pick a false god, we worship that false god, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's another person, whether it's our ministry, whether it's our job, whatever it is, and we go after that and it leads us to bondage and he's still setting people free from that. He's a God who brings freedom. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He is for freedom. So are you? Am I? And I don't mean in our rhetoric. I don't mean in repeating slogans. I mean in the way we live. Is what we say true with how we live? Are we for freedom? Because God, he is a rescuer and a redeemer and a provider and a protector. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the, the creator and the conqueror. He's all those things, but don't miss this. He's your father. It's in relationship with him that ultimately that freedom is experienced. It's not just through praying a prayer. Walking an aisle, being at a certain building on a certain day for a certain amount of time. It's about having a relationship with the Father who created you. And don't you think that he knows you best? He knew you before you knew yourself. He knows your thoughts before you think your thoughts. You don't think that he knows you best? And he knows what's best for you. And so ultimately it comes down to you trust that he actually wants what's best for you. You think he rescued people out of bondage to lead them into more bondage? No, he's the father. Father gives good gifts. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does our father know how to give us good gifts? And he gives us the gift of freedom, experience, and relationship with him. It's like a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's a father, uh, Jed Walters. You know, Jed, if you're here in Theater 9, Jed led worship this morning in Theater 9. Some of you know Jed. He's been with us since the beginning of the church. I remember him playing a box drum. It's the first drum we had. He sat on it. We had like three musicians that day and uh, had about 40 people. And uh, he's been with us since that time and has led us in worship lots of times. And many of you know that we're actually in the search for our next worship pastor. And we've had people submit resumes actually from, I don't even know how they know who we are, but we've had people submit resumes from all over the country um, interested in the position. We brought in a couple guys from the outside. We've had people from internal that have submitted resumes for that. And we've interviewed um, some of those people. And those of you been part of the interview process, you know, if you're, some of the folks on the worship team have been part of that. And then also elders and some lay leaders and different people. And Jad was one of the people that we interviewed for that job. And uh, just so you know, I'll announce next week that he, he's accepted that role as a worship pastor. And so, but act surprised next week, okay? Just kidding. Uh, he and his wife, Erin, are going to be joining us in a couple weeks to be the next worship pastor at Southbridge. And so we're excited about that. And so if you see Jed, uh, just tell him that you're praying for him, if you really are praying for him, and uh, pray for him in and, and that transition from the science world into uh, leading us full-time in worship. But uh, we did an interview with Jed. I remember at the dinner table at my house, my wife and I were talking with he and his wife, Erin. Some of you don't know all of his story, but he's got a two-year-old little boy who's developmentally dis delayed. Uh, don't know all the medical details of that, but he's got some things that have slowed him down in his development process. And He's uh, two years old, but he's not able to walk and he's not able to talk. And I asked Jed a question about what God had been teaching him, and he talked about how great Griffin, his little two-year-old, is. So when I play the guitar for him, he perks up, and it's fun. He's the most captive audience, you know, playing guitar, and it's a great time of worship. And he said, but I would give anything if my son could walk to me and could talk to me. And he said... If someone came to me and said that they could do something to help my son walk to me and talk to me, I would be eternally grateful to that person. And then he talked about his vision. He said, and I lead worship, I feel like that's what I get the privilege to do is to help people walk to and talk to a God, their father, who wants to relate with them, wants to commune with them, wants to have fellowship with them. See, that's the heartbeat of our church. When we talk about connecting people to Jesus Christ for life change, to removing the obstacles, trying to get all that junk out of the way and sometimes it's bondage and sometimes it's sin and sometimes there's things that are in our lives sometimes there are things that have happened to us there's not even stuff that we've done 
But because of stuff that's happened to us, we think that we can't be free. You don't think God knows that? No one else might know that. You don't think God knows what's happened to you? And he wants to walk in freedom with you. He wants to, he's a father. Wants you to walk with him. Wants you to talk to him. Wants you to be in relationship with him. Because he's not just something we can wax eloquently about, omnipotent and all-powerful and all that stuff that we can talk about. It's real. And he's a real God who wants a real relationship and that freedom is experienced in that relationship. But you see, the best relationships are relationships where there's faithfulness. And that's what he gives us. Not when he says, if you want a relationship, here's how it has to be. But he's saying, we have a relationship. And he gives the first commandment in verse 3. And here's what it is. You need to be faithful to me. For us to have the best relationship we can possibly have, I want an exclusive relationship. I want a non-competing relationship. I want a relationship where you're faithful to me. See, because great relationships require faithfulness. That's our second point. Great relationships require faithfulness. See, now they're at the altar, and now he's given them the promises, and now they're about to talk about this thing here. Now, I've already have a relationship, already rescued you, already redeemed you. That's already taken place. You're already walking in freedom. Let me tell you how to best walk in this freedom. Verse 3, you shall set no other gods before me. It's like you're giving the wedding vows, right? Have you ever seen somebody give wedding vows and say, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, until somebody better comes along? Until somebody else catches my eye, everybody's kind of one time, let's sing on the side. People don't say that at the altar. Some people do that, but they don't say it. They know it's not best. And we all know innately that's not best. Now, it's happened. You know, it's, we've all done that to God. And when we're faithless, he's faithful. But he's saying, do you want the best relationship with me? Be faithful to me. You have no other gods before me. First time I read that, I thought to myself, Oh, so I can have other gods, just not before you. Like, you're on the list, and you're number one on the list. It's like some of you might go home today and check if you're a college football fan. Check the AP poll. You want to see who's number one, and how does my team rank in the top 25? And it's like we think God's, like, checking the list. Like, how's your life doing today, Mr. or Mrs. so-and-so? And let's put, he's, like, hitting refresh on his little iPad or whatever. And he's going, you know, is God number one? All right, God's still number one, you know, family number two, and work's number three, and whatever stuff kind of goes into the rest of it, whatever that is. And we think that's how it's supposed to be. The Hebrew word here for before is not talking about a list. It could be translated in opposition to me. You have no one that's a rival to me. There's no one else that can be before my face, in my presence, and he's always present all the time. There are no other gods is what he's saying. It's not that he's number one on the list of priorities in your life. He is the list. It's all-encompassing, and it's all for him. Ultimately for your good and his glory because you're doing what you were created to do when you worship the one true God. Now, we get into this deception because we have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. John chapter 10. And so we start to buy the lie. I'll just go to this. It's therapeutic. I'll just go to this. It's kind of escape. I deserve this. I've worked hard. I've done these things. Everybody kind of, and you'll understand, and you don't know my circumstances. And we get all these reasons for why we pursue something other than the one true God. But do you know what? What ends up happening is lack of freedom. We walk right into bondage. And he wants freedom for you. Now what he does, because he loves you, and he's faithful even when we're faithless, is he continues to pursue us. In fact, you read the imagery throughout the scriptures. We'll talk more about it next week. But he says that when we go after false gods, we're actually prostituting ourselves. And if you read in the New Testament, God is called our bridegroom, and we're the bride. And you read through the Old Testament, and what you see is when God talks about the people of Israel, he talks about them saying that they've prostituted themselves to false gods. They go after these false gods. And he's the husband that's faithful, and we're the bride that keeps running off. And in fact, he tells one guy, and we'll talk more about this next week, there's one guy named Hosea, and he's a prophet, a righteous man. 
He says, I want you to marry an adulterous woman. And you're going to have kids, and the kids are going to be unfaithful. And she's going to go and prostitute herself. And then he marries this woman, Gomer, and she goes out, she prostitutes herself. And then you know what God says to him? You go buy her back. She's his wife. And he's supposed to go into some house, and who knows what this house looks like and what's happening there and what he sees. And he's supposed to pay money to get his wife. You see, you've been bought at a price. He created you, you're his. And then we go out and we prostitute ourselves to other gods, and he comes and he gets us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He brings us into freedom. And then what most of us do is we go out and we're unfaithful. How do you think that feels from the other side of the relationship? But he keeps coming after us, and he keeps taking us back, and he keeps rescuing us. It's grace. It's the only way you can possibly walk in faithfulness. Because he could tell you to leave here today. Have no other God before you. you know, pull up your bootstraps. Be faithful. You will fail. But see, what happens is he gives us, when we become his child, he gives us the Spirit of God to live in us. And when we walk by the power of the Spirit, which means a constant dependence upon the Father, the one who wants us to be free, he gives us the desires that are ultimately of his heart. He's the one who's created us. So wouldn't you think his desires are the best desires? So then we can walk in freedom. And he gives us these rules not to put more bondage upon us, but so that we can walk in freedom. They're the promises of how to have the best relationship. And he gives us the power of the Spirit to do that very thing because he's a good gift giver. And he gives us the power of the Spirit. And Galatians chapter 5 tells us and when you walk by the Spirit, here's what happens. Peace, kindness, goodness, patience, long-suffering, love, very things that we should be for. It's freedom. It's real freedom. Because our Father knows what's best for us. It's like a guy I talked to couple weeks ago, we did a baptism service. Some of you were here for that. We went over to the Hampton Inn and dunked some people in the pool over there, and they were proclaiming that they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They wanted the world to know they were following him. It was an exciting time. It was great. And then kind of people filtered out afterwards. There was this one guy who came up to me afterwards, big muscular guy. He said, hey, it was the second time at church today, and you preach that message. I want to know more about what you were talking about, and how do I know more about God? I grabbed a guy, Jim Henry, who goes to our church, one of the leaders in Celebrate Recovery. I said, come over here. Talk to this guy with me. We started chatting with them, started asking them questions. Tell me about your spiritual background. Started telling me about church and some of those things. I said, you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? I said, no, maybe when I was a kid, my parents might have forced me to do that, but no, not really. That's kind of an interesting answer, I thought, but I kind of kept on with the conversation with them. He starts telling us about his life. I said, do you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today? Do you realize that he died for you? He lived a perfect life. Hard to comprehend. I totally understand it. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross so that he could be a sinless sacrifice for you. He wants to free you from your sin, but you've got to receive him. And let me tell you what happens when you receive him, I told him. So he's going to take over your life. He's calling the shots now. You want to trust Jesus? No bait and switch here. And he said, i got some questions. So ask some questions. He has some great questions. He said, so if I pray this prayer, trust Jesus, are all my circumstances going to be fixed? <laughs> I said, uh, no, I, don't, I can't promise you that. I don't know. It might get worse. I don't know what's going to take place here. So if I can promise you this, that void that's in your heart, that's causing you to go after all those things that have created a bunch of these circumstances in your life, that's going to be filled by the one who created the void so that you would long for him and want relationship with him. And he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as a Savior. Big muscular guy, he was crying. We're sitting there talking. I gave him a hug. It's kind of like all the guy stuff goes out the window. You know, he's hug, we're hugging. He could have really crushed me if he wanted to. Anyway, but we're hugging. He's crying. I said, here's the thing. John chapter 1 says this, that when you call upon Jesus' name, you become a Christian. He gives you the right to be called a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. You know what that means? He's your father now. And here's what's going to happen in your relationship with him. I just try to give him a little preview. I've been doing this for a little bit longer. And I said, you're going to meet some godly men like Jim and some different people, and you're going to read God's word, and God's going to speak to you as your father through his word and through these other godly men. 
sometimes you're not going to want to do what he says to do. And they'll come down to, do you trust that your father actually knows what's best for you? I said, I don't know what your earthly father was like, but you have a perfect father, and he wants what's best for you. And he's going to tell you some things to do, and it's because he ultimately wants what's best for you. They're not just rules. They happen in relationship. And they're so that you cannot have rebellion but have freedom. So are you for freedom? Are you walking in freedom? Are you experiencing freedom? Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence and acknowledge that we shouldn't even be allowed here. That you are a holy and righteous God and that we are unworthy of who you are, but you are gracious. You're a redeemer. You're a rescuer. And as we come to you, hundreds of people right now coming to you, um, we've got a lot of junk. And we've all done some really stupid stuff. Will you forgive us of our sins? Will you cleanse us of unrighteousness? Will you cleanse us of the unfaithfulness? For those of us who are followers of yours, we repent of our hypocrisy and our judgmentalism and all the things that we do that bring shame to your name. And Father God, I pray that you would make us people that are for what you are for. Father, I pray if there's any in this room right now or in Theater 14 right now that don't have a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that they would place their faith in your son, Jesus, right now, begin a relationship with you. If you want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ right now, you can do that. The Bible simply says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, it says there's no other name on heaven, under heaven on earth by which men shall be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. The way you're saved, the way you're rescued, the way you're freed is that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the, talk about one God. No one comes to the Father except for through him, the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. All these are repeated in the New Testament, and the New Testament tells you you can have a relationship with him if you believe upon him. You confess your sins, acknowledge your sin before him. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And you call upon the name of Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross and rose again to offer you life. See, you want to accept that life. You can do that right now as you sit in your seat. If you do that today, right now, and just in silent prayer, even at this moment, I just ask you if you wouldn't mind connect, marking that on your connection card so we can pray for you, so we can give you a Bible, so we can give you some information about how to grow in that relationship with your Father. And Father, I just continue to pray for those that do know you and walk with you. I, I praise you for those that are placing their faith in you all around this world today that will hear the gospel for those that were affected by 9-11, for those of us who were, maybe didn't even see it happen, for each one of us, whatever our situation is on this day, you know that we would hear, hear your word for a reason. God, I pray you'd prick our hearts and bring us into right relationship with you. For those of us who've gone astray, that already have a relationship with you, we thank you that you even take the prodigals back home. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll give you another announcement. Something that's happening here at the church is we've got a, a group of folks they're going out to Madagascar, Africa, and you guys can come on up here, and we're going to pray for them in just a moment. Some of you don't know the whole story of Southbridge, but we started just a group of about 40 people. Uh, we actually were meeting at a country club, which is kind of funny, because I told people when we first moved here to town we weren't going to have a club for Christians, but God's sense of humor. But anyway, what ended up happening is uh, we had one couple, Grant and Jody Waller, they were part of that original group, and God has worked in their hearts, sent them out to Madagascar, Africa. Um, they're planting churches there. And uh, doing a great work. Um, last year, uh, we were able to go with a team. Bill and I were on that team. And uh, Grant was talking about nervousness, about sharing the gospel with people. He'd really spent a lot of time learning language, building a relationship with them. And uh, people that had literally never heard of Jesus Christ. And since that time, has led hundreds of people to Christ. Had almost whole villages come to know Jesus and been able to baptize several of those folks. And they're growing in the word until another village. You know, it's like crazy stories. You start to hear it. But our team's going to go, and about half the team's going to go out in the bush meet some of those people, and about half the team's going to stay back in the city. And so, Bill, tell us when you're going. Tell us right. a little bit about this trip that's about to take place. Well, we're leaving uh, next Saturday on the 17th, and we'll be there till October 1st. 
um, the, uh, about five people will go to the villages, and they're going to focus on the medical and the agricultural needs of the, uh, of the uh, families there, in, particularly in the villages of Basatra and Kalarmi. And uh, that's where Grant has been able to share the gospel with many, many people. Uh, not only are they, are they um, looking at the medical and agricultural needs, but every aspect of what they teach will have an element of discipleship in it so that they can repeat those stories to the next villages. And Grant has done that throughout his work. In town, we'll be focusing a four-day camp uh, on youth. Uh, this is a town of about 100,000 people where they live until they are. And so they actually have this advertised on the radio, and we have no idea how many young people we might have. Young, by the way, is a single up to 30 years old. Um, so we could have a, several hundred people. We'll also get an opportunity, the whole team, to teach at the university. Um, they're very excited to have Americans come and share. We're teaching law to uh, medical things to English classes, and every one of those we get a chance to share our story. So we're really excited and looking forward to what God's going to do through those, uh, those opportunities we have. Yeah, we're excited too. And they're going to be getting on a plane ride. I've been on this plane ride. It's going to be... Uh, Interesting time. So there could be ministry opportunities even on the plane. So Absolutely. we're going to be starting next Saturday. You know, they're actually live going, going and doing this thing. Obviously, God's going to work in their lives. We want God to work maybe in the airports, too, and on the planes, and then as well as the people in the bush or in the city. And be a big blessing to Grant and Jody and those folks. And we want to pray for this team right now. And what we're going to do is we're going to lay hands on them, all of us. Uh, physically, that's not possible. So if you're in Theater 14, uh, you're here in Theater 9, if you just extend your hands out as if you're laying hands on them. The Bible talks about laying hands on people for special work. And I'm just going to put hands on a couple of you. Riley, I like to put hands on you lots of the times. So. Um, but uh, we're going to lay hands on them and, uh, and pray for them. Let me just pray for this team. Father God, thank you so much for each one that's standing here um, a desire, a heart to represent you, to whether it's to be a blessing to Grant and Jody or the, the folks that will be on that team, or whether it's to uh, be bold in the gospel for those that they'll come into contact with they've never met before, which I know can be so hard with small or little to no relationship. But God, I pray that you give them boldness in proclaiming your truth. I pray that your light would shine through them. I pray that when people see them, they would sense there's something different about them. God, I pray for their divine appointments and who they sit next to on the plane. Uh, who they'll come into contact with at the airport. God, I, you never know what somebody's going through and why it is that you have them talking at that moment. But God, I, I just pray that you'd have your hand on I pray that you give them a consciousness of that. I pray that you would go before them. And God, that you'd make it clear that you're paving the way to do an amazing work. And it might be in a simple task or it might be in something where amazing revival breaks out at the university. And God, you know. We give them, we commit them to you. We hold them open-handed and we ask you to use them in a special and powerful way. And God, I pray for each one uh, that's here today at Southbridge that you would use us as we go to our mission fields, as we go to our places of work, as we go to our places of influence. And you'd use us in those divine appointments as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.